How many products do you know of that have been to the moon and back that you can purchase the exact same model of today? I can't think of any. Then you must not own a Fisher Space Pen. Neil Armstrong and the entire Apollo 11 crew carried Fisher Space Pens when they went to the moon. Today, they are used on all NASA Apollo and shuttle missions. They're stocked on the International Space Station. And they're available to the public? They are. Because they have pressurized cartridges, these are the only pens out there that will write for you in virtually any environment, on any surface, even underwater, and yes, in outer space. These are great pens for sportsmen who spend a lot of their time outside. That's amazing, because I'm always looking for a pen to take fishing notes while I'm wade fishing, and I can't find one that works once it gets wet. This isn't your iPhone. This pen will write wet. It'll even write underwater. Fisher Space Pens make incredible gifts, and they're a great corporate incentive or reward. And if you're looking for another reason to own a Fisher Space Pen, they're used by the brave men and women of the United States military and law enforcement agencies around the world. Fisher Space Pen will customize any of their products with your company logo. Which one should I get? There's too many models to list, but the bullet remains the best-selling Fisher Space Pen. All Fisher Space Pens are made in the USA, and they were just honored by President Trump's third annual Made in America product showcase at the White House. I'm ordering mine now on their website, spacepen.com. That's spacepen.com. And don't forget to use promo code DRIFTWOOD to get 20% off your purchase. That's promo code DRIFTWOOD to get 20% off your Fisher Space Pen purchase. Order yours today, spacepen.com. I've been a gun guy all my life. What started with a pellet rifle I bought $10 at a time on layaway has turned into a collection beyond my childhood dreams. I'm right there with you. I'll never forget that Red Rider BB gun I got for Christmas when I was 10. And look at me, I've yet to shoot my eye out. Name a brand of firearms, and there's a real good chance I've hunted with one of their rifles or shotguns. So I can say with complete confidence that CZ USA manufactures some of the finest shotguns, rifles, and handguns on the planet. That's why we couldn't be more proud to partner with CZ USA as the official firearm sponsor of Driftwood Outdoors. This fall, I'll be in Colorado trying to take the mule deer of a lifetime from a hard-to-draw unit. And I'll be relying on my CZ USA 557 American chambered in 270 to get the job done. This beautiful rifle has a walnut stock adorned with a classic checkered pattern. It's deadly accurate and looks like a rifle my grandpa would have been proud to carry. And I'll be stomping the fields of Missouri looking for quail and waiting to sit tight in the duck blind with my CZ Ultralight All-Terrain 12 gauge over under. I love how this shotgun shoots, how it looks, that muted green Cerakote finish makes it ideal for field work and nearly impossible to mess up no matter how tough I'm on it or how tough the weather and elements can be. When you're considering your next firearm, whether it's a shotgun for hunting or sporting clays, a hunting rifle, a tactical rifle, or a handgun for personal protection, you need to check out the impressive lineup from CZ USA. And CZ USA is always posting new products and events on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. You can share your own photos, videos, and experiences with other CZ enthusiasts by tagging them at CZ USA Firearms or visit their website, czusa.com. The Driftwood Outdoors Podcast with Brandon Butler and Nathan Shags McLeod.
on a stage 25 years ago at the Crystal City Festus Owl Hooting Championship, a legend was born. I am Brandon Butler. I'm Nathan Shags McLeod. I'm Steve Jones. Shags, we've had some important guests on our show. <laughs> we've been blessed. We have. But never before have we had the world's greatest owl hooting champion of all time. Are we going to get a taste of this call, or are we just going to keep teasing our audience? Am I going to break your microphone? Well, you can pull it off to your off your mouth a little bit. That's what greatness sounds that like. That is pure greatness. <laughs> I, I get myself goosebumps. <laughs> Is that what you call it? <laughs> is that how you wake up every morning just to remind everyone that you are the world champion? When it's yeah. Jane's turn to wake up, he walks into the room, stands at the end of the bed, puts his fists under his armpits, and gives it to her. Oh, boy. No, the only contest I ever won was Festus Crystal City. Never won anything else. But, uh, Did you ever enter again? Uh, yeah, I think I entered a few. Oh, it'd been better if you said it's no. It's tough. To, I, I only voice call. It's tough to beat those guys that blow on the tube collars. Those. You will always be my world champion. Oh, it's a goosebumps again. <laughs> Number one in our hearts. <laughs> so I lost sleep after the last podcast because you asked me a question, and being an Oregonian, I totally messed it up. You asked me if your favorite movie, Stand By Me, was filmed in Oregon, and I said no, it was filmed in Castle Rock, Washington. I was incorrect. It was filmed in Oregon in Brownsville between um, Corvallis and Eugene, and it was supposed to be set in Castle Rock, Washington. So I literally spent a week of just holding that in, going, please, no one from home text me. I know I messed that up. Please, no one from home text me. So I'm getting, I'm getting that in now, the correction of, yes, Stand By Me was filmed in Oregon. I always thought it was, but when you said Castle Rock, that is the town. That's, that's the town. The movie. Yeah. So I was like, you know, that makes sense. He's probably right. I never never doubted you, man. But it, shout out to Oregon. It, for, ate, it ate at me after that podcast. It didn't sit right. And I, I finally broke down and just Google searched it and was like, oh, I knew I was wrong. That means two of the all-time greatest youth movies of our era come from Oregon, being Stand By Me and Goonies. In Animal House. Like I said, Stand By Me <laughs> and Goonies. Well, do you know the story of Animal House? I mean, I've seen it. It was good. No, the University of Missouri, because they were, they were the first ones to to do um, homecoming and uh, for, for colleges and everything, historic homecoming at University of Missouri, that they came to Mizzou to film Animal House and the president and the board and everything saw the script and was like, you're out of your mind. The Midwest was too conservative. It was like, you are not filming this shit show at our prestigious University of Missouri. So then they picked up the script, headed to the West Coast, went to Eugene, Oregon, and University of Oregon is where that film, where that, that movie was made so it was filmed there is it set at the university of oregon or is it it's I a think fictional college it's, yeah it's set at a fictional college but it's on the campus of the uh, in eugene the university of oregon go ducks a wildlife photographer 
caught a hilarious surprise when he went to check his his field cameras that I put the picture up on our Facebook page Driftwood Outdoors and it was making me laugh because I didn't understand how many people struggle with others stealing their trail cameras that it happens quite a bit and the reoccurring role or re- reoccurring theme that was on this post was this is how we need to start treating each other's cameras when we see them instead of taking them this guy was out in the woods when he noticed a trail camera set on uh set up against a big log a downed log and he laid there and posed for about six or seven different pictures in a very uh masculine but yet dude ooer type of way like on his belly hands underneath his chin feet up behind him and this wildlife photographer was there to try to get a bobcat that he had seen in the area and he went viral after he posted the pictures of this guy in a bright orange vest just laid out on this log doing a sexy time photo for the trail camera and it just kind of made me giggle and I was curious both of you guys I mean all three of us spent a lot of times in the woods what's the strangest thing that you've caught on camera well I got a bobcat chewing on a snake so the snake was still alive and that that snake coiled up around the bobcat's neck and head and was biting the bobcat's head while the bobcat had him bit right in the middle of his body so that was probably the most unique photo i've ever caught but i get some trucks driving through the property i get some four-wheelers coming through the property um it's nice to know when people are coming through and it's even nicer to know that they're even if they're trespassing they're not stealing anything so that's a better feeling i can't think of ever having gotten anything weird but uh but the guy that co-owns my farm with me he put up a, a ring video camera on the property and of course i put on my gorilla suit and walked in front of it <laughs> so you have a gorilla suit i have a gorilla suit yeah full head everything the whole nine yards why do you have that uh it was on sale the day after uh halloween for like 10 bucks at walmart or something so how, how so, many years ago was this i don't know five years ago or so this is why we're friends because i would have totally bought that too well, yeah you yeah. should let me borrow it we could have have some Bigfoot sightings around mid-Missouri really fast with me running around through the woods on trail camera. I like it. Is he going like to fit it. in your gorilla suit? Is this <laughs> I, a big gorilla suit? I might need some adjustments. <laughs> Just seeing nothing but shin. Just yeah. a lot of white, yeah. white pale skin underneath the suit. All right. Well, this one is absolutely insane. Let me just read the headline. A guy in a Facebook group about pointing loaded guns at your own junk accidentally shoots himself in the junk. That there is an actual Facebook group that's all about people taking pictures of themselves pointed, pointing loaded guns at their junk. And they say it's to troll responsible gun owners. So the story is that these group of people were posting pictures that that weren't really showing responsible gun ownership. Fingers on the trigger, safety not on, and responsible gun owners like ourselves were going to the comments to correct them. So they thought they would have this great idea that we're going to start this page that throws caution to the wind and we're going to show these responsible gun owners we can do whatever we want and we can keep our fingers on the trigger and safety's off and point guns at our junk and nothing bad will happen until this past weekend when one of the guys was doing a video and they got it on video of him actually shooting himself in the junk. He says, quote, it went through my scrotum, mattress, box springs, and floor. He shot himself with a 45. And now he's being hailed as a hero for basically sacrificing his balls to prove the group's point. But I don't know what that point actually is. Man, a 45. 
like a 22 would be painful and bad. 45, there's probably nothing left. Nothing left. Well, I think this is a beautiful story because uh, the guy, when he's all done, he's still going to be able to be a productive uh, citizen and pay his taxes and whatever, uh, but he won't be able to procreate. So Darwin, <laughs> Darwin wins. <laughs> let's, let's definitely hope he hasn't had children. <laughs> it just it just blows me away that that's the that's the world we live in. And finally, there was a man in Australia that was on vacation. They were in New South Wales, and it was him and his wife out surfing when the husband saw a great white shark had latched on to his wife's leg and wouldn't let go. So the husband jumped off his surfboard, swam over, and started using the shark as a punching bag, just repeatedly punching the shark in the face over and over and over again until it finally let go and swam away. They rushed his wife to the hospital. She had some severe cuts in her leg, but they're calling her husband a hero, and his heroics saved things from getting much worse. He legitimately won a boxing match against a, a shark, saved his wife's life, and then me being the person I am was like, my God, dude, you will never have to do another chore around the house for the rest of your life. You'd be like, hey, honey, that grass is getting kind of high. Like, well, <laughs> remember that one time where I fist fought a shark and saved your life? Maybe, maybe we can find someone else to mow the lawn on Saturday. I'm pretty comfortable in my chair. You've never been married. <laughs> No, not yet. Happily engaged for about five years now. <laughs> Running for the record. <laughs> so you're saying that that wouldn't last long around the house then, even in a, even in a marriage? No. Uh, but that is pretty cool that he saved his wife from a shark. But this just solidifies again my reasoning between about why you don't go out into the ocean sharks do attack you got to fight a shark on the shore this guy's an unbelievable stud to win a fight against a shark in the shark's own element but no thanks for me now you're a california guy i am did you grow up in the california waters oh yeah yeah we, you're crazy we we grew up fishing in the san francisco bay fishing's one thing were you swimming in the san francisco bay uh the san francisco bay wasn't as it's cleaned up quite a bit uh, now compared to where it was, but uh, no, I I'm never specifically talking about getting eaten by a shark. Sharks are a problem out there. Uh, not in the bay, but I, I mean, I'm sure I've told you the story about when I uh, had a tug of war with a shark with uh, with the cod. I don't think you have. Share it again. I remember you telling the oh, story. Okay. But well, I, yeah. I sent you the picture yesterday. I was, uh, I don't know, 13 or 14. My dad and my little brother and I were out on the uh, Pacific Ocean. Uh, only when it was really calm could we go out in our little boat. And it was one of those days it was real calm. And we were uh, bottom fishing for rock cod. And it was 10 or 11 in the morning. It was getting warm. And everybody was kind of half way napping the fish weren't biting anymore and we had a stringer a nice cod on the back of the boat and, and i was the only one awake in the boat and all of a sudden i heard a little ch chink and i go over to investigate the sound and there's a great white shark has one of those cod and he's headed for honolulu with it and uh, i'm thinking man he's going to break that stringer and get all of our cod so i reached down and grabbed the cod by the gills and tried to take it away from the great. Now this is a this is a, about an eight foot great white shark. It wasn't a giant, but it's about eight foot. Uh, so I I decided to take it away from the shark, and I, and the shark's head came out of the water, and I saw that eye, and 
I did whatever the freeze up version of panic is. I couldn't move. I couldn't let go. I couldn't do anything. Now, as this is going on, my dad is waking up. He sees what's going on. He does. Of course, he freaks out. And he tells me to let go and I can't move. I can't. I, I'm. I'm stuck. I'm in full vapor lock. So he gets a paddle and starts whopping the shark on the head with the, with the paddle. And the shark lets go to fish. And I've got the fish. And, and then we all kind of took our breath and looked around. And there were three of them circling the boat. They were all about eight feet long. About half the length of our boat was a 16-foot boat. So anyway, I, when I told you that story, I think I told you that story at the CFM convention. Yes. And, and uh, I have since found the picture. And you, it's in your inbox. Oh, so we'll have to put that up me, on the Facebook page. You can see the bite in the cod when I'm holding the fish up after we... Uh, I caught about an eight-foot shark um, off the coast of Louisiana. And just to think about how hard it fought on the end of the fishing line, to imagine reaching down and trying to have my fist six inches from its face. Yeah, that was No thanks, man. Hand-lining that thing. Pretty profoundly stupid, but... <laughs> Hey, this is uh, it's a great way to celebrate Shark Week, though. With these, yeah, these for stories. sure. Yeah, you know, there's one more story that I want to talk about this week, and it's uh, it's not a good one. Uh, there was a murder in Eminence, Missouri, uh, close to where I have my cabin, and uh, a great 26-year-old man, Al Brewer, lost his life uh, needlessly. And I can't say that I, I knew him, but I had hired him and his brothers to do some construction work on my cabin. So I'd met him and talked to him a few times. Uh, less than a month ago, saw him on another construction site for a neighbor's house. And this story is so sad. You know, we, we get in, inundated with stories every day, but occasionally one just gets to you so bad and you think deep on it. And that's kind of where I've been going with this. Um, Al was, as I said, 26 years old, uh, in his hometown, married his high school sweetheart, has a baby due in September, and was just driving out towards Alley Spring, and some kind of conflict happened uh, between him and another uh, vehicle, and the 21-year-old driver of that vehicle, they both got out of their trucks, the 21-year-old driver of the other vehicle got out and gunned him down right in the highway there. Um, must have been some kind of altercation on the road. It doesn't, according to the to the newspaper and stuff, there's no history between the two. Uh, the shooter's wife was with him, and it's just tragic. I mean, for one, uh, two lives are ruined. It, it doesn't sound like um, we'll ever know exactly what really happened, but you know this guy didn't even get to see his his baby be born and shags and i were talking about it off the air a while ago and you know being 40 years old and two guys that used to be full of piss and vinegar as we get older we calm down a lot so i don't know if there's any younger macho men out there listening but it's just not worth it man like if if you get if you find yourself that angry over something going on in a vehicle you just drive away you know like we all want to get out and you know, we get so mad and angry sometimes, and you've got aggression, and you want to get out and fight. Um, it's just not worth it. You just don't know if a guy's going to pull a gun out and blow you away in today's crazy world. So it's just kind of my my thought about the, the situation. It's incredibly tragic. A community lost a great man. Um, a wife lost her husband, and an unborn child lost his father over something that should have never even occurred. And, you know, now we're going to, as taxpayers, 
you know, foot the bill for this other guy to sit in jail for the rest of his life. So, um, again, you know, we, we, we get angry, you know, when we're younger, we like to throw fists and I'm certainly guilty of it. Spent a lot of time like that in my life. I know Shags, you did too. Uh, Steve, you're probably more of a lover than a fighter, but (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Especially how everything's going now in 2020 with tensions running so high and the unknown of the, the pandemic and unemployment and where it just, everyone just seems to be on edge that it's, I'm with you. It's very critical to, to take a step back, take a deep breath and, and remember that it's not worth it because I definitely have been in some similar situations that could have ended much worse or, you know, could have ended with me not being here today just because of being young and dumb. And like you said, full, full of piss and vinegar and ready to take on the world yeah certainly the same for me i mean so many different situations arose that i could have easily walked away from that i didn't out of uh youthful ignorance and you know now that i'm entering into this uh longer tooth era of my life just trying to bestow a little hard-earned wisdom uh on all of you listening that take a deep breath count to five count to ten whatever it takes think about something you love that you'd miss doing for the rest of time and just walk away and road rage is never worth it never pull over that nothing good is ever going to happen from acting out road rage on the side of any road or any highway and i was reading something too that was pretty interesting of talking about road rage and how we react to it is that us as human beings we're not programmed to be moving that fast that our our brains have a hard time processing it going i mean going 65 miles an hour we're not supposed to even be able to move that quickly let alone you know run or jump or anything like that so we get overloaded a lot of the time within our brain or subconscious of everything that's happening and someone cuts you off or someone's riding your ass there's like a switch in the back of your head that you're already panicked even though you don't feel panicked talking about or just making you feel like I'm not supposed to be doing this. I could die. What are you doing? And then that flipping that switch of just pure random, random rage that sometimes it's a lot to do with our subconscious and this weird artificial machine that's pushing us through our environment so quickly that we're, we weren't created to be able to do. Yeah. Nothing good's going to come out of it. That's what you have to remember too. Nothing good is going to come out of it. So heartfelt, deepest, sincerest condolences. Uh, to the Brewer family down in Eminence. Um, can't believe you guys are going through this. And uh, to the whole community of Eminence, it's just such a tragedy. Um, again, it's really got me down. All right, on to uh, more positive stuff. We've got our, our great buddy, Steve Jones, who made a, a appearance on the podcast you know, many, many moons ago with us when we were down at Lily's Landing. But Steve is such a special guest, he actually presented us with his conservation CV. Like, I mean, we know some people that have done some shit, but this guy's got a conservation CV. Like, he's going to become a professor or something at a university soon. So let's just take a peek here. It's two pages, single space. two pages. Single space, two pages. On top of being the world's greatest hoot owl champion of all time, crowned at the Crystal City Festus Championship. 
we can go through this incredible document here. You know, he grows soybeans. <laughs> <laughs> He's a graduate of the Bowhunter Defense Workshop, the organizer of Share the Harvest pilot program in St. Louis, chairman of the CFM Archery Committee, chairman of the Hunter Safety, Sportsman's Rights, and Firearms Committee, member of the Ways and Means Committee, President of the St. Louis Longbeards Chapter of the NWTF, Vice Chairman on the Blue Ribble Panel of Wild Turkey Management, Volunteer for the Missouri Hunter Education Instructor, a volunteer, a volunteer Missouri Hunter Education Instructor, co-host of the Outdoor Guide Radio Show with the world famous Bobby the Bob Father Whitehead. Vice Chairman of Otter Trapping Defense Committee. Who knew there was an Otter Trapping <laughs> Defense Committee? Hey, that was serious business, man. The Humane Society was coming after us. Board of Directors <laughs> member for the Missourians for Personal Safety, Western Missouri Shooters Alliance, Gateway Civil Liberties Alliance, Missouri Sports Shooting Association, the Conservation Editor of Outdoor Guide Magazine, a member of the Missouri Outdoor Communicators, the, oh my gosh, a fellow Conservation Communicator of the Year with Shags and I, the webmaster and editor of KillerNoms.com, webmaster and editor of Nomo CB CWD, and the founding member and secretary of Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase, who once outcooked Stephen Ranella on the front porch of my cabin. Woo! Damn. I feel. I feel. The end. <laughs> Mystery bait bucket time. Coming up next, <laughs> gear review. Now, in my defense, I gave you that stuff because I figured you only knew two or three things about me, and we already talked about them. I figured, what are these guys going to talk to oh, me about? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the favorite things about you is the wild turkey bratwursts. Oh, yeah. The greatest Caesar salad I've ever eaten. The secret sauce in that with the anchovies. Oh, my gosh. Uh, sous vide yeah. see I can't even fucking say it right sous vide creme brulee is that the blowtorch yeah yeah he blowtorches it after he sous it uh, we also had sous vide uh, uh, venison chops that's what we had on the hunt with Steve and Giannis yeah. Parker um, and the summer sausage that you made this year is on, on no joke honestly the best I've ever had well, I, it, I appreciate hearing that. It, I was pretty pleased with how that turned out. Yep. And Shags, these are all the hobbies you can have if you continue to never have kids. <laughs> That's something that Steve and I have in common so far. PSA out there for, for want to live a full life? <laughs> Don't reproduce. But you know me better than that, that it's not going to get into souveing no. or blowtorching anything. Shags will have a list of favorite takeout restaurants. <laughs> Can canned goods, my list of favorite canned goods. The fried rice from Bamboo Terrace. Bam, oh man, Bamboo Terrace is legit in Columbia, though. No doubt about it. I got it. you turned on to that. You do. So how did you get it? Is that something you've just always enjoyed doing, was cooking, or is that something you picked up later on? It, it, it's part of what I loved about hunting and fishing from the very beginning. It's like, you know, when I was a, a Boy Scout, all the other kids would have their little s'mores and whatever, and I'd have a couple of teal wrapped up in tinfoil to, you know, uh, broil them in butter and in and, and the campfire, you know. I just always loved that pheasant. I grew up hunting uh, uh, birds, never hunted deer or turkey till I moved to Missouri after I got out of the service. But uh, uh, 
yeah, the the wild meat has fascinated me from day one, and I just I just love it. That's why I put together that website, KillerNoms.com. And well, next to Mark Van Patten, you're certainly the most interesting person I've come to know through CFM, and I'm not bullshitting. Like you really are. I mean, it goes all the way back to wrestling sharks in California as a boy. <laughs> so why don't you start us off a little bit about growing up in California, just like Van Patten did, by the way, and, uh, and and kind of walk us through the early life before this whole conservation CV kicks in. Well, my dad, uh, my dad and his best friend grew up hunting and fishing around the San Francisco Bay. And, uh, and when I was born and, and my brother uh, was born, my dad just kind of just took us along and we hunted, you know, pheasants and ducks. Uh, mostly, and then fished uh, for striped bass in the San Francisco Bay and cod on the ocean and catfish in the Delta, Sacramento so were you, River Delta. And were you born in San Francisco? I was actually born, my dad was in the service up at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington when I was born, but I was raised in California. Which town? Uh, a town called Newark. It's in the southeast uh, area of the San Francisco Bay Area, kind of uh, in between Oakland and San Jose, if you know that area at all. So it's... Uh, Fremont's another nearby town, but uh, yeah, I moved there when I was like two, and uh, and I left there when I was uh, 19 when I joined the service, and uh, accidentally wound up in Missouri afterwards. Obviously, I didn't hunt while I was in the service, but once I landed in Missouri, I found out about deer and turkey hunting, and brother, it was over. <laughs> what, what branch of the military were you in? Army. And, and what was your specialty in that? Because I think it led a little bit to your career, didn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was uh, in the uh, used to be called the Army Security Agency. It became the uh, uh, Intelligence Security Command. Basically, we were Cold Warriors, and uh, I served in. What does uh, that mean, Cold Warrior? Well, the Cold War was very much going on, uh, and a lot of it was electronic. Uh, and we, the main thing, we were they were they considered us INSCOM to be kind of be a, a military wing of the NSA. So what is that? What Cold War means is the fact that it was it wasn't actual fighting on the ground, but it was behind the scenes electronic warfare. Well, electronic warfare was part of it. I mean, the Cold War basically was the battle between the East and the West after uh, after World War Two. Right, was, but no shots were fired. Right. So what is right. the definition of, I guess I've never really thought deep it on was, that. It was a full-on war that lasted for decades. An intelligence war, essentially. Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. And you were a fighter. A lot fighter. of spying, people spying on each other. I wasn't on the spying side. I mean, all I worked was with the electronic side of things. I, I repaired uh, the machines. Electronic warfare intercept systems repair was my title. And uh, So you were like Q and James Bond. Just like that. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> you had a weird little cave that you're in there tinkering with all this stuff and watches that would shoot poison yeah. darts. Yeah. But uh, I did that for four years, and that was uh, an interesting job, and I came just this close to staying in and making it a career, and I still sometimes kind of wish I had. I just really enjoyed it a lot. But uh, I had such great uh, technical training that I was able to turn that into a pretty decent job, come right out of the service, and all the skills transferred directly to data analytics yeah and compute I, I worked on I was a computer repairman for a now defunct company called Wang laboratories and uh, so I did that for a few years and then I got into software and then I got into project management and, and uh, that was my career so how did you actually end up in Missouri then 
Uh, a woman. My uncle. <laughs> that's how it always happens. My uncle will tell you you're not the first man to make that mistake. <laughs> I I was no mistake. I, I I love Missouri. I I kind of knew. I was talking about the woman, not Missouri. <laughs> now she was a good woman too. I still miss her a little bit. <laughs> but uh, when I got out of the uh, uh, service, I my plan was to move to Texas, and I got out. Uh, oh, it's it's a long, boring story. No point in going into it. But uh, it was an accident. I wound up in Missouri. Uh, it was supposed to be temporary, met a gal, and uh, it, that was that was the end of it. But I knew I wasn't going back to California soon after I left California. You know, Joe Rogan was talking about that the other day where they said that when people leave California, they don't come back. I mean, I had no idea. It's like, you know, you can't explain to a fish that it's wet, you know. But once you leave California and you realize, oh, my goodness, the world isn't like that crazy place, you know. And I said, oh, if, I, if I'm going to, you know, have a career and maybe a family or whatever, I don't want it to be in California. So California was always a four-letter word growing up in Oregon. Yeah. Anytime you saw a California plate, it was, it was like, oh. What are you doing here? You're going to ruin it. So you settled in St. Louis? Uh, I actually started in Overland Park, Kansas, and uh, working in the Kansas City metro area. And then I uh, moved to St. Louis for a promotion and, uh, and bought a house. <laughs> this, this was another part of what, what happened. We bought a house, bought a golden retriever. I'd always grown up with golden retrievers for pheasant and duck hunting. And, and I was so excited to finally get a dog. And I was going to put a run in my backyard. And the neighborhood association said, oh, thou shalt not have a run in our neighborhood association. So I moved to the Labadee, Missouri, out in the sticks and uh, started started deer and turkey hunting and that was that was basically a big pivot in my life moving out into the country uh, where i've lived ever since now i got to give you credit i mean anybody can build a website but for you to put together a website that looks so <laughs> vintage how much time did it take to build a nine i mean look it, it, you had to have built it recently but it looks like it was made in 1985 well i, I think it probably was uh <laughs> i was waiting to hear the dial-up sound my, when when yeah. the, the, boop, boop, boop. i love the little deer, the deer emoji that bounces across <laughs> but in doing research on your phenomenal vintage website i found out that you killed your first buck on your second morning hunting ever with a bow and it was one of the bigger deer you've ever killed or at that time or it took a long time to kill a bigger one it, it was really nuts if there's if there are the gods of hunting they're like uh Pushers. They say pushers give you your first couple of uh, doses for free until yeah. you know, you're hooked. So, I mean, I I got into turkey hunting, and I liked it a lot. Uh, first season, the first season I ever hunted in Mary's County, I killed two nice adult gobblers, and I thought, well, this is easy. And uh, I never never harmed another gobbler for five more years after that, despite trying very hard. Um, but then I thought, well, I can hunt turkeys in the fall, too. And I got out there, and I then I found out about you can bow hunt for the deer while you're out there. You know, you can bow hunt for turkey and bow hunt for deer. And I was ate up with the turkey hunting. So I uh, uh, just, you know, the, the stats were, I think it was about a 10% success rate back then. So I figured, well, I'm going to bow hunt these deer for about 10 years before I get one. And I went out October 1st, the first day of the season. And uh, uh, was 87, I think that was, 1987. And uh, had a little action, blew an opportunity, and then the next morning, this this buck, 119-inch buck, walked out in front of me and committed harikari, and uh, and 
brother, that was the, the level of excitement at that. I mean, all I had to do for about a year or two afterwards, all I had to do was think about it, and I would get that rush of endorphins again that, that I got after I shot him, and it was just just amazing and of course i didn't i i uh i've passed up a lot of deer because my, my 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 lovely wife jane has a hundred i think it's a 162 inch buck on the wall so wow I, so i've decided i'm not going to shoot one until i can beat that so i've passed <laughs> up a lot of bucks over the years but. so you had the bow out there and you'd never deer hunted before what got you into archery right out of the gate were you archery hunting for turkeys too right out the gate yeah it was primarily for turkeys uh although i got interested in the deer and it was just it was just like a hobby and i literally in my brain thought i, I you know it's going to be 10 years before i get one but that's okay i just want to learn the process and but why the bow at the beginning well because it's a challenge long, such a long season mm. you know you could be out there i mean the season opened used to open on october 1st back then and uh but, but the, the hilarious thing is, I say this, and it's absolutely true. I I studied up on it. I practiced. I'd used my bow. I knew I knew so much about it, even though I'd never done it before, and I had nobody to teach me. I learned it all from videos and such. Uh, and I was I was very prepared for everything except actually getting a deer. <laughs> I was one hundred percent unprepared for success. Because I read that about continue the story. I read about that just about the vehicle you had brought you had brought out. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it was my my then as my ex wife's. It was uh, her Honda Civic, which is really <laughs> just a great and this this beautiful buck. You know, when they're freshly killed, they're kind of like a big old two hundred pound sack of Jello. You know, and I'm by myself way off in the woods. And uh, how, I, I mean, getting that thing loaded into the Civic was impossible. Uh, I got it done, but it was very, and I'd never cleaned one before. You know, it was just, it was quite an adventure. And and it it left its mark on that Honda Civic because every time it got humid, you could smell that buck. <laughs> you had a little bit of and, funk in there. And both my ex-wife and I were both very relieved when finally totaled that car and didn't have to smell it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you you developed this passion for hunting here in Missouri, and obviously you've had an incredible run in conservation advocacy work. How did that get started? Well, it it, it started I think after that the, that first turkey season and that first deer season for me. I mean, I I grew up loving hunting, but I wasn't passionate about it. It was just a really enjoyable uh, recreation. But you know, I became aware of the challenges to hunting and uh, just I was so excited by it I just wanted to give something back and so that's why I got into being a hunter ed instructor and started paying attention to the politics of things I'm really interested in the politics of conservation and uh, so that's what I've normally write about when I write uh, and uh, work on I mean you know we've all been in the uh, legislative uh, arena together uh, testifying in the in the legislature on, on bills when when necessary and it's it's just it's just a passion and and not having ever had kids it's a, a nice way to channel uh, that excess energy but a lot of people love to hunt very few of them move into that next realm and and start taking on the challenges of conservation like you said going to the capitol you know standing up for policy what was it that really drew you to the advocacy aspect of it well, when you when you get deep into it, you become very aware of the threats, and and uh, I, I just feel an obligation to use education and political advocacy to uh, to to 
to do battle to preserve the future of, of our conservation heritage. I know that sounds like flaky words, but uh, I just don't know how not to do it, I guess is what I would say. That's so true, too. Like when, because I was in a very similar boat, I always enjoyed the outdoors. I've grown up hunting and fishing, but it's like once once that door just creaks open a little bit and you get a peek of the threats and being in Jefferson City and the poor legislation, it's like it's not even a peek anymore. That door just flies open and you you've seen the eye of the beast and you can't help but continue fighting to continue the analogies it's like getting behind the curtain in oz and seeing who's pulling the strings and what their motivation for pulling those strings is and everything is on the table it's usually a little man with some type of complex too just like in wizard of oz now ross is pretty big yeah uh, uh, i'll tell you a funny story when i started being involved in the cfm uh, I'd never dealt with anything like that before, and of course, I, I think I was 40 when I started getting involved, so that makes you about the youngest guy in the room when you're at the CFM. But uh, it was, uh, sometimes I was a little disappointed at the quality of debate when we're in committee meetings and whatever, that, you know, it's, it, it, I, I had never been in, involved in something like that before, so I, I just, if, if I was really well-informed, I was disappointed when others weren't maybe as well-informed. Think about how much that's changed, though, in the last oh, yeah, absolutely 10 years. True. Absolutely you true. had to be 40 to be in the room. Uh, I was 35 when I became executive director. I'm pretty sure that's how old Tyler was, too. And so in the, the CLC program and the MCCA, you know, it's really making a change to a younger generation. That's true. And we, we certainly need more. Uh, there's, there's still a lot of white hair in the room, but uh, there's, there's, there's more... Uh, tattoos and piercings showing up so it's because shags joined up (laughs) i got the tattoos covered i'll pass on the piercings yeah there you go so you weren't satisfied with the level of debate oh yeah i thought you could elevate it your your own self when i when i started going to legislative uh committee hearings i realized oh oh our level of debate is far far advanced over these guys the, the some of the people that we elect to that body just blows my mind uh how how they got elected well we've talked about this before but i'm happy to recap and uh, there's really a few different buckets that most of these people come out of your biggest one is retirees people that have time on their hands uh for example, our great friend who we're so excited to see headed to Jeff City, Bruce Sassman. You know, now Bruce is right around 70 years old and uh, he's made his money. He's out of the workforce. So now he feels an obligation and an opportunity to, to give back and um, move some things that he cares about in the right direction. So there's those people. There's uh, farmers that have the time because the job essentially lasts from the first week of January to the third week of May. It pays a salary of what? I think $36,000 and a per diem of about $120 a day. You work three days a week for five months with a spring break. I mean, we don't get spring break at my job and you get health care. You get all kinds of benefits. So it's a hell of a side job. If you're a farmer, self-employed or a lawyer and now those are the dangerous ones because a lot of the big law firms will take junior lawyers and inject them into the legislature put a bunch of money behind them build up their power get them into the position where they can influence the real legislation being moved and then take care of their clients from the inside so it's an inside man's game i mean 
the whole thing is is there for anybody to come to understand if you put in the time so well it's uh there's a lot of things that we have seen in that body that are worthy of criticism. Uh, but I should also say that there's plenty of people that really do provide good service and really seem to have uh, approached the job from a real uh, moral standpoint. And, you know, good on them for that. Uh, it's unnecessary for the most part, though. I mean, they essentially are obligated to pass a budget. So Montana, I believe they meet every other year. Um, I know other states are like that. I believe South Dakota is every other year for like eight weeks or, or something ridiculous. Uh, I shouldn't say ridiculous. It's actually the opposite of ridiculous. It's probably what all state legislatures could be. Uh, I don't think they need to operate for five months. It just gives them time to come up with things that don't need to be discussed. It allows for opportunity to play games like what we saw happen with Share the Harvest this year. Shags, do you have any idea? If you are if you had to guess, maybe you already know. How many bills, do you, different bills, do you think get filed every year total? It's got to be a lot because it seems like that's all they're doing is filing yeah. ridiculous bills. It's, there's 164 state reps and 34 state senators. I'm pretty sure, right in that ballpark. So I mean, they got to be doing more than two apiece. So just take is a shot. 800. Do you know the answer? I don't know. I'd guess 1,200. It's right around 2,500 to 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> Because that much stuff needs to be fixed every single time. Well, the, yeah. the vast majority of them never see uh, a committee hearing. But they eat up time. They do. That's they the do. problem. That's that's my point, is they never they never see the light of day, but it, it's your tax dollars being wasted on something that will never see the light of day. And it's essentially, you know, it, it's just a waste of time well, and effort on things that actually could matter. Well, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but... I think it kind of falls under the category of it's just the way things are. But there are a couple of things about Missouri politics that I think we could change and would make a huge difference. One of them is term limits. Term limits is the worst idea we've ever come up with because it means we we are absolutely ensuring that the legislature is always ignorant of their job. I agree with you. Uh, and, and it's like the voters saying, I want to take away my choice for who I can vote for because term limits sounds good you know it's just it's just a ridiculous uh thing and the other one is the salary of these guys the salary is so low that it interests only people who think wow 35k that's a lot of money or guys that are so rich that it doesn't they don't care what it pays i want to i want to be able to attract people to that position that maybe might have a job in industry and maybe maybe 100k 150k is what they're worth they're never going to go be a legislator. So I've got all kinds of thoughts about these. One, uh, the way we get to that higher salary is by cutting the number of those serving in half. So currently a state representative is representing 35,000 constituents for $35,000. Let's just double both. Let's pay them $70,000 to represent 60,000. Now you've gone from 164 down to 82. Let's find a way to just get that down to a nice round 80 and pay these people $75,000 a year and benefits. That's enough to attract some quality folks to those positions. If it remains a five month a year job, which allows you to go out and do other stuff. So that's one fix right there. We don't need Need 164 state reps. We just simply don't. Uh, the Senate, you know, 34 is not too bad, but why don't we just figure out how to get that down to 30 and make it a nice even number or even 
25 you know let's reduce that a little bit because i think they represent 125,000 uh constituents so move it up to 150 and call it good so by reducing the number you're you're whittling the pool you're likely increasing the quality and and making making it a more functioning body i agree with you on term limits too and I know a lot of people right now are shaking their heads, disagreeing with us. They think, oh, we don't want these career politicians. You keep hearing, like, that's such a bad thing. But what you lose every time you turn over is all the institutional knowledge that it takes to build. Perhaps if we got these higher quality folks in there, it wouldn't be so bad. But some of these mental midgets can't figure it out in eight years. So with an eight-year term limit, it's like... It's almost like drawing preference points for a hunt out west. You're not going to get your shit until you're at seven or eight. So you got to bide your time in years one, two, and three, unless you're some kind of serious superstar. So you just get on the bench. It's like being a freshman in high school and wanting to be the point guard on the varsity basketball team. You're not probably going to get it until you're a senior. And the same thing goes with passing this legislation. So again, it's this process that has to be worked over and over and over. You know, reducing the number of people and getting rid of the term limits to allow this institutional knowledge to stay in play uh, is, is critical. And you think, oh, well, there's certainly people that have termed out that we're super glad to see go. But on the other hand, there's people that are great that it's heartbreaking to see them go. So well, it's a balancing act. The problem is every time there's an election, a third of that body is people that have never done that job before. And it's it's such a high bar for anybody that wants to influence them to get them educated on your topic it's 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 just a it's just a mess yeah that's the other thing about being a legislator i mean you might go in there an expert in one area but you have to govern and make decisions on votes that have to do with everything under the sun so you have to have you have to be competent enough to, to basically have a general understanding of everything that's true and i'm sure you know whenever you get into politics like this you can almost hear some of the eyes glazing over out there but so i'm going to just do a little quick commercial for those of you that only want to look at politics every once in a while uh, pay attention while the legislature's in session in january through may and come and visit the uh, conservation federation's uh, legislative action center it's at confedmo.org lac and uh, the cfm keeps track of the most important bills what their status is and if you need to be contacting your legislature legislators they will have the instructions on how to do it it's all simple a couple of couple of clicks points and clicks and and you can uh, be a, a meaningful participant in the process without having to spend a lot of time and and be a policy wonk yeah i, don't, I hope people's eyes aren't glazing over I, I i hope people understand how important it is you know people say i don't want to talk about politics i don't want to listen to politics but i truly think most people that i come in contact with would like to be more educated on politics i think we all suffer from the fact that there's nowhere to get real honest uh unbiased news these days you don't know what to believe but understanding the process understanding what's going on understanding who represents you i mean that's a great place to start just figure out who your state rep is who your state senator is what they stand for and how their beliefs are influencing your life i mean it's kind of like climate change and anything environmental you don't want to talk about it you don't want to have to deal with like making it right but that's the same thing with politics like if you're not engaged if you're not paying attention if you're just like casting shame and doubt from the sidelines and saying ah oh, that shit's corrupt and it's horrible then it's gonna stay that way 
You know, unless people get involved, unless people start putting pressure on their elected officials, it's just going to stay that way. And you're spending money on it. Like your tax dollars are paying this. It's not like it's free. So you're already invested whether you like it or not. I think I'm kind of stuck there in in the middle too, where I struggle with sometimes it being like being inundated with all this information. And I think Stevie bring up a really good point of the CFM's LAC, the Legislative Action Center, is that that's such a simple way of just putting your information in and they'll shoot you an email with like a breakdown of the bill and if if they're behind if they're supporting it or if they're against it and if you want to be a part it's literally just a click of a button it shoots you uh, an email that's already written out you can add some stuff if you want or you can just hit send and they'll send it to your your rep and i just like it for getting the emails to keep me up to date with some of the things that have to do with conservation and what cfm's keeping their eye on because brandon like you said you can get lost in the information and you've said it before too i think a lot of people get caught up and especially now in the election year of what's happening in washington dc see where those decisions don't affect our lives as much as the stuff that happens in Jefferson City that if you if you wanted to you really should be focusing your energy on what's happening down here and not necessarily what's happening in in DC and there's some national groups to pay attention to as well the Sportsman's Alliance does a lot of policy work for hunters rights uh, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation which is really important in in getting legislators on the same page across the aisle Um, so you can pay attention and sign up for these kind of legislative alerts nationally as well the national wildlife federation uh, backcountry hunters and anglers there's a number of them out there yes you know you you just reminded me of a point i wanted to bring up today i've got a i've got a a project i want to start you ever see the guys driving down the street and they got a decal in their window of of a big buck or or a turkey foot or something like that uh, and sometimes there'll be a decal for, you know, uh, CFM maybe or National Wildlife Federation. But usually, often, I don't know if I'd say usually, often, there's no sticker from any conservation organization. So I think I want to start a photo project of taking pictures of these guys, blur out their license plate, you know, I'm not going to dox anybody, but uh, have a whole website that all it is is pictures of these people that, that are so proud of their hunting that they want you to know that they hunt, but they don't spend any money to help support the uh, uh, the process by joining Conservation Federation or National Wild Turkey Federation or Ducks Unlimited or you don't have to join all of them just join one of them just one and put their sticker on your car there you go it's a good business idea I think a lot of people just are unaware ignorant bliss because that's how I was until I met Brandon and and CFM. I always thought I was a conservationist. I paid my licensing fee. I mean, I bought my licenses. I enjoyed the outdoors. I hunted. I mean, I grew up hunting and fishing, but we were never apart. My buddy and his dad were, would go to DU banquets, but that's all I would know is that they would go to these elaborate banquets and some comes sometimes come back with shotguns. Like we, I didn't really understand the idea of these organizations and these groups that were doing all this work to make sure that salmon was in the river the following year or that there would be a deer in the clear cut again. I mean, it took me until I was in my 30s before I became my late 30s before I became a member of CFM and then on the board of directors that I think a lot of people are just unaware 
they think they're doing conservation work when they're just being recreational outdoorsmen. It's easier that way. And people are busy. I understand it. We talked about it on previous episodes about why these organizations are so filled with the white hair, as Steve said. I mean, that's when people have the time and the money and the resources. But, you know, as Steve also said, just join one. It's worth it for the magazine. It's worth it for going to a banquet. You can go to a Ducks Unlimited banquet for 40 bucks and get a dinner and a membership. Now you're getting the magazine. You're probably going to have a good time. Where else can you go get a dinner and a in a room full of people that like the same things you do. So find the organization that uh, moves you the most, whether that's, uh, you know, Elk Foundation, Whitetails Unlimited, QDMA, NWTF, Trout Unlimited. It's out there for you, no matter what it is that you like. And join it and, and just uh, send in your 35 bucks and get a cool magazine. Here, here. Now let's talk, Steve, about the legislation, the fight that we went through that really um, – brought both of us to the forefront of the legislature and and that was when the captive deer issues were taking place down here in jefferson city i'll lay the groundwork a little bit Um, i showed up here at cfm as the director on march 1st uh, 2014 and essentially it was like that building down there that's the capitol and you need to go down there and figure out how to stop this captive deer legislation from moving forward and I was like, what? You know, so I, it, it all started. We had a barbecue. Were you here for that when we did the, the cookout in the parking lot out here? I did not. That was like my first official action at CFM was we got a couple kettle grills. I think I was here. Now I remember. We made some cheeseburgers and about 25 of us walked down to the Capitol. Yes. And we went around and, and met with legislators. And that was day one, essentially, of legislative action for me. And then that morphed into doing the postcard. And that was like a big initiative for this organization. I mean, we hadn't, you know, kicked the bull in the nuts that hard in a long time. We made a postcard and took in donations from some of our partner organizations, a number of them. I know Boone and Crockett. I mean, some of the big ones. And we printed, what, 150,000 postcards with this beautiful Ron Kruger fawn picture on the front and a bunch of information about chronic wasting disease and mailed it into the districts of the legislators that were pushing this legislation the hardest. That was a massive project, and, and with CFM had never done anything like that before. And, and that, uh, that was the battle over sustaining Governor Nixon's veto of a bill that basically redefined deer as livestock. Uh, privately owned deer as livestock and uh, that we won that vote by one vote in the veto session in the veto session. so here's what happened in, in a little bit more depth uh, this bill went through the house and the senate and couldn't get passed on its own there was not enough votes to pass it so one of the dirtiest things that happens in politics is that bills are combined onto an omnibus bill meaning you could have a bill that makes it good for 10 things and then you can have a horrible thing added in and that's what they did with this agriculture omnibus bill i mean they were trying to do uh, scholarships for kids on dairy farms with money that was already there for it. I mean, all kinds of good things. And then they they tacked this switching captive deer from agric- from conservation to agriculture on it and essentially dared Governor Nixon to veto it at that point. And man, he did. He called this uh, he called this press conference in 
the ballroom at the Tiger Hotel where CFM was founded in Columbia and gave me 24 hours notice and said, try to get as much press as you can get there. Now, keep in mind, I haven't been in this job like three months and I'm freaking out. The governor's office is calling saying, how many people are coming? I'm like, I don't, I'm not getting RSVPs. I'm just standing on top of the mountain screaming this as loud as I can. So I'm worried that no one is going to show up in this ballroom and Governor Nixon's going to be speaking to an empty chamber. But what happened was incredible. There was more media in there than could fit. There was every news station lining the walls. Uh, the standing room only in the ballroom overflowed into the hallway. All four of the conservation commissioners sat up front. A bunch of dignitaries sat up front. And he came in and vetoed that bill on camera in front of everyone and it was it was just the most intoxicating moment uh for me you know to see the like strength of the federation swelling in that room it, it you know it was so good to have that kind of an intensity in the early stages of that job for me because it just lit a fire that drove me nearly insane so for people that aren't familiar with it explain the dangers of if that would have passed because you 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 kind of passively said deer would have went from conservation to ag what what did that meant right this all comes down to uh chronic wasting disease which please don't let your eyes glaze over i know it's a complex topic uh but chronic wasting we have disease very is... smart listeners <laughs> <laughs> quit acting like you're talking to a bunch of dumbasses i've been fighting this one a long time it's a tough thing to talk about because it's so full of complex complexity and part of it frankly sounds fake and it's not uh it's it's, it's like a science fiction disease uh you know, anybody that went to high school biology has a really a pretty good understanding of how illnesses work and the difference between a bacteria and a virus and how the immune system works and all that. Chronic wasting disease came from another dimension. You, you, everything that you know about illness is, is different uh, in chronic wasting disease. And it is, it, it is very possibly going to mean the, uh, could mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it could mean the end of deer, uh, long term. It may take, you know, 50 or a hundred years if that is going to be what happens, but it is, it is one of the possibilities that's on the table. And one of the things we know about chronic wasting disease is that the, the confined cervid or confined deer industry, which there's, Oh, I think 200 plus uh, whitetail breeders in Missouri. That's on paper. I mean, to be fair, there's less than 10, I believe, that are full time operations with staff and, and making a big business. Anybody that has one deer in a fence is listed. So you know how I feel about this. But just to be fair, like that's every permit issued. There's about 20, I believe, high fenced shooting operations where you can go in and pick out a deer and kill it and call it a hunt. Uh, and then there's about 200 people that have a pet deer or oh, I should say maybe 190 or something like that. And then there's about 10 like full scale uh, commercial operations. Well, it's it's a it's a big deal that business requires being able to buy and sell live cervids and ship them around on trucks. And that is absolutely known to be uh, one of the 
probably the number one way that CWD is transmitted around the country is through that thing that they have to do. And there's no way, if they have the best of intentions and they do everything perfect, the nature of the disease and the testing that's available make it so that it's impossible for them to conduct that business without posing a threat of moving the disease around. And once the disease is established in an area, nobody yet knows how to get rid of it. So are the only... The only public policy that makes any rational sense at all is to fight it as hard as we possibly can, to keep the growth as slow as we possibly can, and hopefully give uh, the science time to catch up and find us a solution before it's too late. And and this is, you know, with a gestation period of like 18 to 24 months, uh, research is very, very slow. Uh, and and it's and these these deer that get the disease are contagious that whole time before they show their first symptom they're they're contagious for 18 uh, 20 months leaving these uh, th- this infectious thing called a prion which is the CWD version of a uh, like a virus uh, those get into the soil they persist for years they're infectious for years in the soil it's just like a nightmare and so what we need to do is regulate that confined servant industry in a way that ends the threat that they pose to uh to to the spread of regarding the spread of cwd and uh, it's still they're still in business they're still doing it uh we still run the risk of new outbreaks it's almost certainly uh was brought into missouri by uh, uh one of the high fence operations uh because that's where it first appeared like right outside their fence well we're not unique in the ability to say that it was first brought into almost every state that doesn't physically touch colorado by a truck and We've seen so many graphs, and Steve and I have been so deep into the trenches on this and meetings all over the country with real scientists. It looks like a plate of spaghetti sometimes when they show the graphical movements of these breeder bucks from facility to facility. And the easiest analogy that I've ever come up with is right now. Think about COVID. Think about if one kid with COVID goes into a classroom with 29 other kids and you lock the door and you don't let them out. You know, it's one thing to put a, a, you know, one kid with COVID with 29 other kids on 3,000 acres of forest. It's another to reduce that down to a small breeding facility and lock them in there together. So any transmissible disease is essentially going to spread into that whole herd, it, just like it would spread around that whole classroom. And that's the danger in it. And, and now you take that kid and put it in with those 29 and then you pluck five of those 29 out and spread them out to five more classrooms and then you pluck five kids from each one of those classrooms and you can see how this just populates its way across the landscape yeah it's it's amazing and some you know we should say missouri is doing a better job of managing this than uh, uh than just about any other state i'd say the only two that are really doing a tremendous job is missouri and illinois but it's still sad what we're having to suffer in order to do a good job absolutely true doing a good job is at the expense of serious culling operations that are like decimating to the dreams of certain landowners who have worked forever to be able to purchase their own little piece of paradise and then all of a sudden this horrible disease shows up no fault of their own and deer have to be depopulated in and around their property yeah 
it, it is it is heartbreaking. I bought my farm uh, one week before Randolph County was declared a CWD zone, so that was a real kick in the gut. So not only did your uh, management opportunities change, your economic value likely decreased because if you're talking about that north central area of Macon, Moberly, right? I mean, recreational deer hunting property took a nosedive. It's worked its way back up, but it, it went down pretty drastically there for a little while. And if you go to where the hotspots are, I forget how many hotspots the MDC has identified, like maybe six or ten, something like that. Those little areas, maybe a section or two or three, I, those... I don't think those recreational values are going to come back there because there's all they can all they're doing there is just trying to fight trying desperately to fight the disease to a tie and uh, coming close to doing it. I mean they they statewide we're still under 1% uh infection rate and knock wood. Uh but uh there's you know we've got decades decades more of battles before we know how this is going to turn out so why do you think like if you get on any type of social media and read any of the comments on mdc's facebook page or anything like that of all the people thinking that cwd is fake or you hear a lot about it being a money grab it's a way for mdc to somehow get more money that there's a lot of people that aren't on the same page that don't necessarily believe it's real look President Trump is going to be remembered for a lot of things. Uh, one of those is the moniker of fake news. Oh, you hear it all the time. We live in an era of fake news. Uh, you can find fake news to make you uh, justified in anything it is that you want to believe. And if you want to believe that MDC is wrong and evil and, and just killing these deer and this is a fake disease, there's no end to the fake news that's on the Internet to prove that in that sort of fashion. I mean, not really, how do you prove a distruth, but in your own mind, you can prove, look, I'm right. And I witnessed it firsthand. I went to a, essentially a rally for uh, the captive deer industry up in Macon, and they brought in this celebrity. I wish everybody could see me doing the finger quotes, a guy named uh, Keith Warren, who's, you know, had a second rate TV show on the outdoor networks for years and makes his money by promoting and supporting the high fenced industry. And they brought him up and had like a hundred people in this room while he told them all like, it's all a lie. And he like made this DVD about how it's all a lie, all sponsored by people who benefit from this industry being in place. So, you know, he's taking money from fencing companies, um, genetic, modification companies antler growth companies everybody that's reliant on this pools their money together creates a fake narrative and tries to convince the public that it's true and if you're already biased in one direction you know anti-mdc anti the department of conservation then you start buying into it believing it building up your case of fake facts and using those to propel the message forward and then you get on facebook and somebody else forwards it on facebook and before you know it You've got this entire like fake narrative, and we're, this is just a microcosm of how that's taking place across media and journalism worldwide. Like, what do we believe anymore? So, if, if you're like, well, I really want to do the, you know, let's one of our our good Facebook friends, right, who gets on and says, do your research, <laughs> and you go on Facebook and you or you go on in the internet and you do your research. Well, how do you know what part of your research is even real? It's not like this is peer-reviewed science. You know, it's just some asshole saying that 
CWDs not real. So now you're getting it from both sides, and that's that's how you control the message. That's how you dilute the story. Well, there's there's a combination of people who really are informed and know better and are absolutely willing to just lie yeah. to, to their base for the for no, money and I, I i'd love to name a couple of them but do it uh, but there's some <laughs> liability associated with that so i won't and then there's a lot of people that are, are of good of good heart who trust some of these people and they just become misinformed and now they're an agent to further propagate the misinformation even though they they maybe wouldn't lie if they knew anybody and there's just a lot of really stupid people who are out there you know on Facebook every day, spreading conspiracy theories. Well, in, in the defense of the people that don't have CWD right, uh, you know, I'm going to repeat myself. It is so complicated. And once you, the facts, the true facts seem very unlikely and foreign. And I, I can't, I can't blame somebody for not, not believing it. Well, because I was on the current river last weekend and it was so frustrating because a guy went floating down him and his buddy and they were bitching about MDC from when I could hear him from earshot all the way past me out of earshot. And I almost said something, but then I was like, again, we were talking about, is it worth it? Like, am I going to change their mind or is this going to be a fist fight on the, on the gravel bar? But they were talking about deer hunting in Missouri and how Missouri is the only state in the country where you can't hunt over corn and he's like and his buddy was shocked like what which is untrue completely so 100 percent yeah. untrue so far from true because of cwd it's really becoming illegal across the midwest a lot of states and counties are jumping on board but that I digress that his buddy was so shocked by it and was buying into it. And he was like, why, what, why would it be illegal? And again, the guy said it was because of fines that him and his uncle got fined one time for hunting over corn and it's all a money grab. MDC wants to write tickets and that's why it's illegal to hunt over corn. And they were bitching about corn. I swear to God, I could hear him for 15 minutes coming down the river and it makes you almost physically ill to be like, you're so ill-informed and you're just running your mouth screaming these inconsistencies and untruths and if you just took i mean as soon as i got into the inter, uh, internet range i was like i wonder how quickly i can disprove this one google search of how many states is it illegal to hunt over corn boom shows you all the states like that's all it would have taken was a google search to find out if that was true and these two were spouting it back and forth into other canoes like it was the gospel so we never wrapped up the story though about how the legislative of session ended in 2014 so governor nixon holds that press conference it's a huge success uh he vetoes the bill which again took out all kinds of good bills that cfm and everyone else was in favor of i mean good stuff but it was the it was the people that made the omnibus bill that should be held responsible for that good stuff going away and not the governor that vetoed it because it was their dirty political trick that put it at jeopardy to begin with so he vetoes it and it goes to what's called the veto session, meaning once a governor vetoes a bill, it's not necessarily dead. A special session is called and that legislation can be brought back up. But now 66% of the body, right? Yes. Two thirds of the body right. has to vote for it. So no longer is it 50.1% to win. It's 66% now. So we know that we've got the votes to make this stay vetoed um there's a there's a legislative body or a, a committee i guess in the legislative body called the black caucus and it's made up of the black legislators and 
we had a good relationship with that caucus and we knew we had those votes and that's what we needed to to block this and then ferguson happens and the black caucus was so mad at governor nixon over his handling of that that they vowed to vote against everything that he wanted voted for so this is how politics goes like there's so many moving parts crazy so now we've lost the black caucus so now former director bob zemer uh aaron jeffries myself and a couple of commissioners are like there watching the senate debate this and uh the senate we, we surprisingly lose the senate by two so now we go over to uh, Madison's and have a drink and discussing like next steps. Like it's been accepted that we're going to lose the house already. And we're, we're having a drink all somber and everybody else leaves. I go to the house. Uh, Rehan Nana, who was working with me at the time, shows up and me and him are sitting in the corner of the upper gallery, hidden out like two little boys while the end of the gallery the center is filled with like 50 of these deer breeder guys like big strapping dudes in their cowboy hats and we're like holy shit man like it's dust we're we shouldn't be in here like we're the enemy you know and we're watching this floor debate and now this bill comes up and on the wall in the congressional gallery is a board that's electronic with every house member's name on it and when they vote red is no and green is yes and they needed a hundred and nine votes to overturn the governor's veto and tim jones is the speaker at the time and he's off the dais and this board is flashing just red green red green and just blah, blowing up and you're like what's going on and we're watching it and all of a sudden you hear close the vote close the vote some dude's all excited and you look at jones and he looks up at the board and he starts doing his best like slow motion track run (laughs) suit jacket flying open back to the dais and he's about to close the vote and this state rep from st louis named jeff rorda is sitting in the back and he switches his vote they had 109 they needed 109 and it goes to 108 and Rorder was trying to switch it at the moment that he would clap it and it would be over and they would have thought they won but they lost but they stopped it they go no and he like doesn't slap the doesn't slap it closed now they've got 108 and a number of the republicans have have gone against the party at this point so this young group there was a state rep from the north named casey guernsey and he was involved in dairy and and he was really running the dairy side of these bills and this like group of like frat boys like legislative frat boys all get together and they 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 pack up like wolves and they go from from desk to desk berating their fellow members just vote for do it for casey do it for casey that's what they're yelling and people are like getting up out of their seat and leaving the chamber they were being so aggressive and i'm sitting up there like any second one person is gonna flip because i mean there's a ton of political clout there like if you're the guy that flips for your party like you've got everything on the table they come to you they're berating you you're like what's in it for me bro you know and that's how that 
political game is played. So there is all kinds of chips on the table for you to collect. If you'd have been like, I'll switch my vote right now if you'll do X, Y, and Z. But it never happened. And there's a timer on these votes. And we had to sit there for like 20 minutes while all these negotiations are going on. And you're thinking at any minute, somebody's going to flip and we're going to lose. And no one flipped. And the clock ticked out. And it was 108 when they needed 109. And just to clarify, because this is such a big deal, the original bill introduced would have changed white-tailed deer in the state of Missouri from being wildlife to livestock. Correct. Correct? In captivity. In ca- so, Which means the conservation would have had no control over testing, regulations, transportation, anything that would have put the wild white tails at risk. And now if you think about the fact that we've got an estimated 1.3 million wild white tails in Missouri with an economic value of about $2 billion per year, like that's how much money goes into deer season each year, $2 billion of people hunting deer, traveling to hunt deer, eating in restaurants on deer hunt, buying equipment, buying guns, buying ammo, all of that. Compare that to the tiny, microscopic little industry that has tried to pollute deer hunting with this fake hunting experience by genetically modifying these freak deer into something that you would never see in the wild. Like, how does 2 billion and 1.3 million and the 520,000 of us that buy licenses compare to this little microscopic? group well the people with big money like to hunt behind the fence ching 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 (laughs) thank you sir collect your prize on the way out the answer to your question is always money right so every republican automatically got a thousand dollars in their box from the so it used to be like the missouri deer breeders and hunting ranch association so they like they were okay with who they were. They, they had their name on who they were. And then to fool the public, they changed their name to the Missouri Deer Association. It's like you got to be even secretive about who you really are and what you actually do. And then, of course, the leader has been arrested like multiple times and charged with felonies, been in and out of court for breaking all the rules. And yet they're down there with their fingers crossed, tucked behind their back saying, we, you know, Boy Scouts honor, we'll do no wrong. And then you walk in right behind them and here's like, well, here's three felonies against the leader of this organization right now. Yeah, he, uh, we can say his name, Sam James. I mean, he, uh, it's, it's on record. He was convicted of uh, uh, smuggling deer to uh, Arkansas back in, I don't know, 2006, 2007. And then he was convicted of smuggling deer to Florida uh, in, I don't know, 20, sometime later in the, in, in the 20-teens somewhere. And he was also uh, charged with uh, felony um uh, intent to forge breeder movement certificates, uh, and that was a serious charge. That was in Lynn County, Missouri. Uh, those charges were dropped without comment. So this guy's in the Capitol writing checks, you know, or his association is dropping checks into the box of everybody with all of these charges against them. And somehow that little organization can wield that much power over that little amount of money because it's going directly to the legislators, then the $2 billion economic impact, 525,000 public land or public deer hunters 
have collectively. Think, and when we talk about why we have issues, that's why. Well, since we're so deep in the weeds on this, we also have to bring up the Supreme Court case. Which was awesome. The, uh, <laughs> uh, the Department of Conservation back in 2015 came up with some... Well, real quick, let's just say, so that's how 2014 ended. That was, that was the last moment of the 2014 legislative session for us. So we catch our breath for about, that was September. So we catch our breath for October, November, and December and then January happens, and it's the worst onslaught of attack on conservation the state's probably ever seen in retribution for losing that vote. That's, that's true. That's true. So the, the department uh, made some, some minor reasonable changes to uh, the regulation of the, of the confined servant industry, and uh, including uh, uh, banning importation of whitetail and mule deer. Uh, and uh, a couple other minor things, some, some additional fencing restrictions, et cetera. But the biggie was the, the import ban. Uh, you could still buy and sell a whitetail and mule deer in Missouri, and, and you could still ship them out of the state. You just couldn't ship them into the state anymore. So uh, that was the rule. Uh, the deer breeder industry sued uh, uh, to oppose that rule and found a friendly judge who immediately issued a temporary injunction uh, stopping the department from enforcing those new rules. And uh, that was in the court for, uh, I forget, a couple of years before the guy finally was forced to rule and he made his injunction permanent. And then the department appealed and it went to an appellate court who sat on it for it seems like it was a year. Maybe it wasn't as long as a year. But at any point, the appellate court basically did a really fascinating thing. They said, if we were going to rule, we would rule in favor of the department. But this is too important. We're not going to rule. We're going to just kick it up, kick it up to the Supreme Court and let them decide. So then the Supreme Court had it for some months and finally came out with the most amazing uh, pro department ruling i mean it was it was beyond even the scope of the original uh lawsuit which i didn't even know they could do that but uh it was amazing they basically said the department of conservation is the primary regulatory authority for all servants in the state privately owned or or publicly held there and that's just that's the end of that story the greatest thing that they said was wildlife is wildlife no matter which side of the fence it is on so essentially that's like saying if i'm a human walking around out in the streets and you're a human in a in a jail like in a cage we're still the, we're still the same species we can't you know we can't be separated simply by the confines of our environment right. so they they said no you can't have two kinds of deer you only have deer and deer wildlife and that's how this is going to move forward so that was great news it was the best possible ruling we could have hoped for but let's Keep in mind that all that really happened as a result is those 2015 regulations that had been uh, stopped by an injunction finally came into effect. So now, today, even, it's illegal to uh, import whitetail or mule deer into the state. But all those other things, despite the fact that the department clearly has regulatory authority to, to do anything with that industry that it wants to, they haven't really made any further... They're gun-shy, man. It is still legal to put deer 
live deer on a trailer and move them around. You can sell them to each other and ship them around the state. You can uh, ship them out of the state. You can import all of the fallow deer, axis deer, psycho deer, uh, red deer, uh, red stag. You can import all of those you want into Missouri. And all of those, they're all cervids. They all pose a risk for CWD. And that's still perfectly legal, and it still happens every day that those deer are being imported into Missouri. So... So one of the things that we had to do in the first year of my MBA program was go to the Supreme Court and meet one of the justices. So we all walk in and we're listening to this justice explain the court. And finally, he says, is anyone familiar with any cases? So I raised my hand and I said, I'm really I'm really familiar with the Department of Conservation and the captive servant case. And he just starts laughing. He goes, oh, that was a good one. He said, how, how are you knowledgeable about it? I said, well, I helped write the amicus brief. I don't think anybody else in the class knew what an amicus brief wasn't. So he was he was engaged at that point. And we start talking about it. And I asked him, I said, how could you, the Supreme Court, see this so clearly and vote unanimously in one favor and this circuit court judge get it so wrong and he said you know we talked long and hard about that we still couldn't figure out how he got it so wrong and that was his reply to it so you know that shows you that shows you you need to be a little bit scared of the judicial system too when you're just at one circuit level you could have a judge that rules one way and then it goes to the supreme court and they're like this is so clearly the wrong verdict that we will not only vote unanimously to overturn it but we'll throw a few more things on top uh, because we don't think it goes far enough yeah that was a that was a heck of a day so is that is that how your Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase all came about then? Was that fight? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, Missouri Hunters for Fair Chase uh, was intended to uh, create an initiative petition that was going to um, ban, essentially ban the transport of live servants in the state. Any transport of live servants in the state. And uh, it was going to be... Uh, it would have gone to a vote of the people, the same way that the Department of Conservation was originally created, the same way that the one-eighth of one percent conservation sales tax was created. It goes to a vote of the people. So we were going to get gather. We, we, we created the petition. We submitted it to the Secretary of State. It was We got permission to begin gathering signatures, and we were working hard on that. And that's when the Supreme Court ruling came down that was so broad that it called into question whether how much our effort was going to duplicate that. So it almost looked like we needed to back up and uh, and decide if we were going to move it up. We were going to do it in, I think, 2018 was our intention to uh, to have the uh, uh, the election. So uh, we so we withdrew the, or we stopped signature gathering. So we never achieved the signatures needed to get it on the ballot. And after that Supreme Court ruling, we decided we, we need to wait. I mean, because it's very expensive and difficult, massive amount of effort to get something on the ballot. So we thought we need to see how the Supreme Court ruling shakes out before we decide if we're going to do that again. And it was, uh, I don't know if there's going to be any future for that. The organization actually is now disbanded. Uh, we're we're not, no, no longer active. But uh, that's not to say that it wouldn't come up in the future if the department and the commission still 
allows uh, cervids to be transported in Missouri uh, forever, uh, you know, something has to happen to stop that, uh, unless somebody comes up with a cure for CWD, in which case, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want. Well, let me ask you the hard question about CWD that no one seems to want to talk about. Do you think it will be able to be transferable from the deer, the cervid, to human? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but that's mad cow disease, right? Mad cow disease was well, a prion. Was a prion. The class of diseases are TSEs, transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, and there's several of them that have been identified uh, so far. There's a couple of them that humans have. Uh, the probably the most famous one by far was. Uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy which was mad cow disease which uh, broke out in britain and uh, killed uh, a couple hundred people before they figured out how to break the chain of uh, uh, of infection by making some changes to how uh, how cattle operations were how cattle were fed in cattle operations but everyone that got it died Oh yeah, it's 100% fatal. Uh, no, there's no such thing as immunity to a prion disease, and there's no such thing as uh, a tr there's no treatment. There's there's nothing you can really do. Yes, everybody that got it died, um, but it's it wasn't really that con uh, well it wasn't contagious at all. It was very different from CWD, which is contagious. It was not contagious. The only way you could catch it was by eating the uh, the meat or nervous tissue of an infected animal. You couldn't get it through contact, not contagious by contact. Uh, one cow couldn't give it to another one by contact. They all were getting it through the food supply. So uh, so that's the most famous one. Uh, and, and then uh, uh, when chronic wasting disease was discovered, it was, of course, the big worry was, oh, my goodness, is it going to transfer to humans? Uh, and so far, there are no, I'm going to be really precise here, so far there are no known instances of it transferring to a human being. Not according to Larry Dablemont, who's <laughs> yeah. probably the dumbest son of a bitch in yeah, Missouri. I, enough said about that. <laughs> but that there, there, so there, are, there are no known. Uh, I mean, there is a human C W uh, a human uh, T S E uh, called Creutzfeldt Jakob disease, uh, which you mentioned, which has it's apparently a spontaneous disease. It's been around for forever. About one out of every one million people get it. Uh, uh, for reasons that nobody understands, it's not tied to genetics or your country or your diet or, or whatever. Hunters aren't more prone to it than anybody else. And it's not the same disease. Uh, our friend, Mr. Dablemont, likes to say it's the same thing as CWD. It's not. It's like saying that AIDS is the same thing as the flu because they're both viral. You know, these, these, I mean, Corsoliacum disease is a prion disease or TSE, and so is CWD, but they're different diseases they present differently they they act differently and cwd is contagious whereas creutzfeldt disease is not so um but back to our conversation on fake media i mean there's a perfect example larry right. dablemont writes these newspaper columns that i mean it's like he got dropped on his head and started writing fiction and people believe it you know he's got a, he's got a following of people who believe the things that he says i mean he could say he got back from the moon last night and brought with him some crazy cure and they'd be like that larry david good guy you know but it's completely irrational what he writes about this kind of stuff and newspapers will print it like i've had to write so many 
retorts to editorial boards on the crazy things that someone like him will write that no one at the newspaper can debunk. So they're just going to go ahead and run the column like it's an opinion piece, even though it has to do with human health and science and, and, and trying to get people to understand real dangers. Uh, it's that's the problem with the media. Well, I, w- I want to come back and answer your question as clearly as I can about whether or not it can transfer to humans. And once again, it has not transferred to humans yet. Uh, we, although we've, that has been studied extensively, and we know that humans are eating uh, contaminated deer, deer that have been. So we know there has been a fair amount of contact over probably three or four decades now, uh, if not maybe a little longer, and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, Every researcher will tell you, we don't yet know whether it can. Uh, we can absolutely cannot say it never will. Now, now, there may come a day where they can say it never will, or there may come a day where they say it's uh, it's it's possible but unlikely. That is one of the one of the possible answers. But on the other hand, there was one study that's actually still underway uh, that found that, fe- see, a lot of these studies, they inject infected material directly into the brain of an animal to find out if they're going to get this that, this particular prion disease. And that's invasive. It's not That doesn't occur in nature. So, yes, they know that they can give CWD to other animals by intracranial uh, uh, inoculation, they call it. Uh, but that doesn't really mean anything in the natural world. That doesn't mean that a human uh, can get it. I mean, you're not going to inject it into a human's brain. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen through eating it. It may mean that there's a million to one or five million to one odds against you getting it that way. But after enough contacts happen, it's possible that somebody will actually get it. Nobody knows. They do know that it's possible. Or they can't rule out that it's possible. And uh, the thing that's scary as heck is remember that it's different than mad cow was. Mad cow was not contagious. CWD is contagious. Contagious by contact. It persists in the soil for decades. Transmitted uh, uh, between uh, one infected animal to an uninfected animal. It's That is scary. If it ever actually did transfer to people, that could be uh, make COVID look like a, a joke. Well, because I thought I read somewhere too that it, it it doesn't respond to heat. Like the you can't just catch an area oh, on yeah, fire because it survives at such high temperatures. Yeah. It's, it's like you're talking about it. it's it's like the thing almost from that Kurt Russell movie. It's yeah, that's it's, a, that's it's a, incredible the way it can survive. That's a that's a great point. It's like people say, well, if you just cook your meat well, uh, then you won't have it. No, it's it's. It, it, Cooking temperatures don't even phase uh, prions. In fact, I think it's something like 1,250 degrees over a sustained period of time. I mean, you would actually have to do full-on incineration. If a CWD-positive buck takes a piss in the dirt, those prions can live like seven years in the dirt from that piss. Well, that's what I'm talking about, too. Even longer. You can't go with like a flamethrower or something to little dirt patches that test positive and like, and then it's gone because they'll... It has to be such high heat for extended, extended right. period of time to kill it. But Look, there was there was one study where instead of injecting the uh, they alive they like to study with monkeys because they're closest genetically to us. There's these uh, uh, macaque monkeys. They uh, fed some of them just a normal 
it's just meat from an infected white-tailed doe, uh, preclinical, so it wasn't like it was really blown up with the disease. Uh, fed some meat to them, a normal amount that the monkey, these uh, macaque monkeys are are omnivorous; they do eat meat, and uh, a couple of them got CWD from just eating the infected meat. So, have you followed up on that? That the study is still not completed. They 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 issued that that. Uh, that fact because they thought it was so important so that other researchers could could try to reproduce it etc so that study is still not published well, uh, but that but that did happen and that is scary as heck a lot of people really for the first time thought man that's that's a point in favor of of considering it risky for people so pretty soon here we'll be packing up and heading down to patty malone's the the bar here in jefferson city owned by our friend alan tatman and everything that we've been talking about reminded me that i saw this uh, cartoon strip on his facebook page the other day it kind of sums up what we've been talking about on on communication and fake news and facts and there's a person on the left who says that meme you just posted is factually incorrect in several ways <laughs> The guy on the right says, sorry, libtard, it's 100% spot on. And she said, here's a link to a National Academy's meta-analysis of dozens of studies clearly contradicting your post's main point. I guess we have a difference of opinion. (laughs) No, we're debating whether a giant pile of verifiable objective facts is more credible than some unsubstantiated propaganda meme. Here's a link to a Fox News story saying the same thing. The girl puts her head down on the keyboard, and this guy says, I bet you feel pretty foolish now. You can apologize anytime. <laughs> That's the world we live in, man. That is definitely the world we live in. Well, I could sit here and talk CWD all night. I think we could talk 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 ourselves silly, but we do need to get out of the CFM office in like the next 10 minutes cuz it's a Friday and people are trying to trying to get out of here. And we want some chicken wings and whiskey now. Yeah, exactly. Malones. But before we get out of here, we got to do the mystery bait bucket, which is an antique bait bucket with random questions submitted by friends, family, fans of the show. You can always submit a question at Driftwood Outdoors on Instagram or on Facebook or email info at Driftwood Outdoors. So Steve's pulled out the question, read it, and we'll all go around. This is a relief. There's been some scary questions come out of this bait bucket, so I was a little nervous picking one here, but this is uh, from this one is great from Max. Turner, is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> Good old Max. Max has dropped a couple of gems in this in this bait bucket. Formerly add Max to the team. Somehow. Yeah, we need to get him on there. I mean, if be you, a pro staffer. If, if a sandwich is meat between bread, then the answer is yes. That's why I always I always like to argue a hot dog is a sandwich because it really upsets people, and I think it's funny. I mean, the hot dog itself is a hot dog. So you can eat a hot dog without a bun, but a hot dog in a bun is a sandwich. Is a sandwich, unquestionably sandwich. Oh, we're gonna piss so many people off. That's a unanimous <laughs> hot dog <laughs> but, sandwich. We're like but, the Supreme Court of Missouri. <laughs> but we, we, we're, we've buried the lead here. Are you allowed to put ketchup on it? No. Yes. No. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Get, yes. Get out of here. Being, being someone that butted up against Chicago, if you were to put ketchup on a Chicago dog, they'd run you right out of the city. I'm from Northwest Indiana, so we variation our Chicago hot dog a little bit. At least I do. There's aspects of the Chicago hot dog I like a lot. One, uh, I like the mustard. I like having tomatoes on my dog, and I like having a pickle on it. Some onions is good. Uh, I don't like the little poppy seeds 
on the bun. The black poppy seeds, you know what I'm talking about? I like the poppy seeds. I'm not a fan of the poppy seeds. So I'll add ketchup and remove <sighs> the poppy seeds, have ketchup, mustard, pickle, onion, tomato, and a robust beef dog on a nice steamed bun. Steve, please tell me that you're an, a normal human being and don't put ketchup on a hot dog. I I, I absolutely put ketchup on a hot dog. Um, I although how I are would, we all but, friends? But, but I would not put ketchup on a Chicago dog. I mean, I'm not an animal. <laughs> <laughs> now there's there's hot dogs I'll eat certainly without. I like sauerkraut. Like I like roasted sauerkraut on a dog. Um, there's nothing like going to the ball game and just getting some sautéed onions on a dog and no condiments after that. Oh, spicy mustard or just regular mm. French's mustard on a hot dog. That's the only way to roll. Ketchup just ruins it. It's a child's condiment. I can't believe we're at, up against the wall here because there's so many things I want to talk about. Those turkey brats that you made this year. Those were good, weren't they? Those were phenomenal. Give give away the secret. Come on. Let's well, I, I don't. I, I didn't memorize it. It's a pretty simple recipe. You can go to killernoms.com and and uh, and you can see uh, the 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 turkey bratwurst recipe. It's oh, it's pretty, out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of recipes out there. So, did you only use breast meat? I, I no, I used a combination of uh, breast meat and thigh meat. Ground it up. Ground it up, right? And I added some pork fat, and uh, I can't remember the, all the other. I mean, standard bratwurst seasonings. And I mean, the key is getting your balance of lean. One one of the problems people have with tur- wild turkey is it is so freakishly lean. That it's hard. You you have to be sure that you're getting enough fat into the sausage to make it feel correct in your mouth. Otherwise, it just feels dry and mealy. So uh, I can't remember what the what the ratio, the right ratio was, but it's in the recipe there. I think it's 40 percent or 35 percent fat. And I've, I use good pork back fat to do that. But using the right fat is important. I I, I favor good pork back fat and. Uh, and you know, go check out the recipe. It's easy to make. It's a fresh, uh, a fresh sausage. I make it with uh, with a little bit of dairy in it. So you uh, actually cook it uh, right away. You 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 poach the sausage, and then I go ahead and freeze it. And it's uh, just a great texture. I'm so glad to hear you enjoyed it because I'm I'm really proud of those. It did, was so good. Did you put ketchup on the turkey brat? No. No, of course not. Yeah. Oh, oh, that that's, that's sacrilegious. I put ketchup on. I put uh, pepper on it. Now here, that's it. Shags, a little I'm pepper. I'm gonna help you out here. Stop thinking of it as ketchup. Call it um, uh, sweet and sour tomato chutney. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's still a no go for me. <laughs> as he pours ranch on his hot dog. Hey man, I'm, don't lump me into all the Missourians and their fascination fascination with ranch. Ranch is okay. With chicken wings and maybe a little dip of a pizza, but I'm not one of those that has got to be hammering ranch either. If you ordered a salad, what dressing would you get? Blue cheese. Okay, that's fair. Blue cheese. I like blue cheese. We got to give a shout out to Steve for rocking our title sponsor. He's been sitting there taking notes with his Fisher Space Pen. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. This, you know, when I get you guys gave me this pen when I was on your podcast the last time, and I thought, man, that's just. I thought it was like, like I got a Mont Blanc uh, <laughs> pen, and I, you know, those are things that are like a couple hundred bucks, and I thought, this is this is just the coolest thing ever. And then I went to their website and I checked it out. These things are very affordable. Yeah. Go to the website. You get twenty percent off if you uh, if you. And Use there's the many many. Driftwood. I mean, I really like the uh, uh, this bullet 
one that looks like a bullet. I mean, it looks so much like a bullet, you would not want to try to take it on an airplane. But how's it work for you? Uh, it works fantastic. Yeah, and so it's, it's funny because everybody's like, well, how, how did the space pen become part of the Outdoors podcast, you know? The national sales manager is one of my longtime oldest friends. We grew up hunting together. In fact, his dad took me on my first hunt ever. And we've been talking about expanding his market. And I'm like, look, man, there is a high-end shooter, fly fisherman out there that should have this pen. So we got, of course, the relationship going, and now I write with them all the time. And you pick up a pen that's not a Fisher Space pen, and it's like you wonder if it's going to work. Do you have to, like, you know, flop it around to get the ink back down to the tip? Every single time you pick up one of these pens, because the cartridges are pressurized, it just works. Like, you never have to worry about, like, starting to write out that birthday card to mom and it just, like, impressing down on the card, but no ink comes out. It's just a great product. It works every time. You know, and I got to say, we've all heard the commercial where Shags talks about needing to take notes while he's wade fishing. It even writes <laughs> underwater. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I, you know, if you have never met Shags, I am absolutely positive he actually uses a pen to take notes while he's wade fishing. I, I would say, I wouldn't believe that of anybody else, but of Shags, absolutely. And, and I hope everybody is ready to take a couple of shots here because Shags being six foot eight and, <laughs> and Brandon, Brandon being a pilot, you know, these two guys are closer to outer space than the rest of us. We're so go, we're going so, to the bar next too. We're going to have yeah. to go do a couple of shots because of Steve. My dad will never grow out of giving me shit. So he likes to make fun of the fact that we're like, and it even writes underwater. He's like, yeah, so when I'm in the shower and I'm taking notes, like, man, dad, come on. Thanks for the support. It definitely helps when you're on the water or even if you're, uh, if, if you're trying to take notes or anything when you're out deer hunting or turkey hunting or anything like that i mean if those pins get wet they don't write and the fisher space pen writes in any weather and in, in any condition it's best legit of, best of all chicks dig them oh yeah it's a prized possession give us an owl hoot <laughs> Gear review coming up next. Time for the Driftwood Outdoors gear review. We're back with another gear review. Brandon, what are you reviewing for us today? Well, if you listen to this podcast, you obviously know how important it is to be an owl hooter. <laughs> you may never be the great Steve Jones, world champion type level, Crystal City Festus trophy on your mantle but being able to owl hoot is a pretty important skill a turkey hunter can have primos has been a hunt and call company that i've worked with my whole life uh, always had a primos grunt call around uh, the can doe bleat was something i carried around as well steve if somebody was going to buy a primos hoot flute call which is only 7.99 on amazon why do you want to be able to be a hooter in the woods well any you're trying to make them shock shock gobble any sudden noise can tend to make them shock gobble you're ruining my gear review. no 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 i'm gonna i'm gonna come back right around to say being in favor of it, being an owl call uh because it's something that is natural it's a natural sound that that naturally occurs there in the woods uh but it very predictably i mean they the gobblers respond to it so i think it's a uh, it's my favorite 
sound to use to make a shock gobble. Yeah, maybe you can make them shock gobble by slamming a car door, but no, you can't do it predictably, and it's an unnatural sound. And, you know, who wants to hear unnatural sounds when you're out there and the, having that beautiful time in the turkey woods? My gear review is going to be something fishing related, which is a complete shocker. It's the Sims Freestone Fishing Hit Pack. It's going for $140, and this pack is like a miniature roll-top desk. It's got enough compartments to hold everything. I mean, even your rain gear, uh, fly boxes, leaders, and the compartments are big enough to put mini tackle boxes in there if you're spinning fishing as well the belt is comfy packs padded the the rid rigid design keeps everything inside safe and on the outside a variety of clasp pockets and tie downs keep tools secure within easy reach it's a little steep for a wading fishing hip pack but it is worth every dime it's the sims freestone fishing hip pack we'll see you down the trail You know how much Shags and I love it down in Shannon County, Missouri. How could we not, man? The fishing and the hunting is incredible. So is viewing and listening to elk, touring the mills, exploring the springs, the caves, horseback riding. And floating, the Current River and Jack's Fork River are some of the most beautiful rivers in the world. Look, if you've always dreamed of having that special place to get away in Missouri, then you need to check out the Scenic Riverway Hills Development, just two miles east of Eminence on the Jack's Fork River. They have lots ranging in size from 6 to 86 acres available right now for as little as $19,000 for 10 acres for your little slice of heaven. All owners have shared use of a three-acre common park right on the banks of the Jack's Fork River with picnic grounds and access for canoes and trail riding. To learn more about Scenic Riverway Hills, visit scenicriverwayproperties.com. Brandon, you know we're both artistic guys. Yeah, we put this masterpiece together. (laughs) But in all seriousness, everyone needs to check out Mason Leather out of Plano, Texas. Yeah, our friend Lee Mason, uh, cartridge cuff guy on Instagram, has incredible handcrafted leather works for shooters. Dude, his cartridge cuffs are super cool. They slip over the butt of the stock of a rifle or shotgun, and they have loops that hold shells. And yeah, super cool because they also have slings and a few other products. Lee is an artist producing awesome handmade products here in America. These make great gifts. So if you think the father in your life would appreciate a timeless piece of leather work for one of his prized firearms, look up Mason Leather. Visit MasonLeather.com and use the promo code DRIFTWOOD to receive 10% off any order. 